0: Hi everyone, this is Mo Zafzal. You're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast, and um, today we have Michael Leithhead uh, on the podcast. Welcome, Michael. Um, I think it, it, it's good to be back, mate. Is this the fourth or fifth time? But uh, obviously, it's been a tumultuous time in fixed income markets over the last, you know, uh, fourteen, fifteen months. So your uh, your attendance is always uh, gratefully <laughs> received. We are. Um, in full flow with fixed income today. So um, so let's go into the talk of the day. And and uh, we've just had the um, inflation data out in the US just um, a few hours ago. And uh, what's fascinating is that uh, the initial reaction on the bond market to sell off and now is that he rallied down to below 1.5%. So, um, Michael, I guess first question straight into it is... Um, you know, what's going on uh, with, with Treasuries? You know, if you like, peak peak um, inflation fear seems to be today in terms of, you know, the questions you and I asked uh, are asked about inflation and the macro team are asked about inflation. People, but uh, if you like, peak market inflation worries was actually March and since that time, it's just completely rolled over. So, uh, you know, what's, what's going on?
1: So I guess in terms of the best indication of where sort of market its pricing inflation, and I say I say pricing rather than uh, expecting because obviously you know inflation break even rates, which is the difference between the treasury index linkers and um, real yields, oh, sorry nominal yields for US treasuries, um, is a sort of indication of the amount of compensation you'd be paid for inflation over a period of time. So when you look at that it peaked out in March, as you say, around 2.6%. So, I mean, at 2.6%, we haven't seen those levels of inflation consistently over a 10-year period for a very a uh, very long time. And actually, in terms of where it was in market pricing terms, is actually very similar to the levels we were seeing, you know, when we had that increase of oil to sort of uh, over $100. So, In terms of the extremity of how much the market was actually scared and how much um, inflation was sort of priced in in the short run, um, it looked very, very stretched in terms of uh, market prices. So since then, really, what we've seen is um, break-even rates come down, normalised to sort of around about 2.3% level. Um, And that's sort of been coincident, actually, with um, uh, the decline in nominal US 10-year Treasury yields. So... You know, um, the peak we saw again, sort of in March, April time, um, we've we've come back. Uh, and I think, you know, as you mentioned on that CPI print, um, you know, we're now just below 1.5%. Uh, so it looks like, uh, you know, there was a lot of sort of, i would say uh, market positioning where people were positioned for ongoing pandemic hadn't really priced in a really strong economic recovery hadn't really priced in um, any inflation whatsoever and then suddenly you know there was a scare around um you know where nominal yields should be and and real yields to a certain extent were would remain relatively stable so i think the fed you know, the market is essentially buying what the Fed's saying about allowing inflation to run hot. We're seeing real yields very low. We're seeing um, nominal yields still sort of, you know, um, having adjusted a bit higher to account for that economic growth. But um, but I guess in the middle, um, you've got this inflation risk premium that just sort of naturally adjusted uh, maybe a little bit too much. And now we're sort of coming back to a level which is, is more sensible. So I think, you know, there was a part of economic surprise There was partly the high inflation prints and then there was partly uh, market positioning that kind of um, weighed on, uh, you know, on on treasuries in in March, April. And we're sort of seeing that come back now. So um, I think buy the rumour, sell the fact is often the way CPI inflation prints Often correlate um, with uh, break-even rates. So essentially, what we're seeing today, the market prices forward for the next ten years, rather than thinking actually where is inflation going, where sh- should structural inflation be, and um, and I think we're seeing that again now.
0: Certainly, the macro team, you know, believe that certainly in the US inflation basically peaks around this month, if you like, um, around May June period, and then. Actually, looking at inflation forecasts as we move forward, they're generally drifting lower. Uh, you know, over the course of the next uh, 12 months. So uh, I think that certainly um, will 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 roll on. You know, we still have um, a uh, a two percent long-term 10-year treasury rate, which I don't think is unreasonable when the Fed, I guess, is more hawkish about interest rate and interest rate expectations. So. So uh, I think that seems to be um, reasonable uh, to me. Um, So in terms of thinking about nominal yields versus tips uh, or inflation linked uh, protected securities, What's your what's your thought process at the moment?
1: I mean, when it comes to inflation-linked securities, I think, firstly, the point you're making on, you know, the macro team's call on inflation to come down and normalise the base effects to drop out, that will reduce the overall coupon you're going to be paid on inflation-linked securities. So, you know, basically you get a higher coupon the higher inflation is. Um, so in terms of your carry, that is lower than it perhaps is pricing in. And then secondly, if you think about real yields... Um, real yields are exceptionally low right now. So tips have definitely outperformed this year, but looking at, you know, five-year tips pricing in negative 1.6% real yields, to me it doesn't make a lot of sense, um, you know, to buy uh, tips at this point in time. You know, we are likely to see nominal yields rise, but I think that comes alongside a rise in real yields and, you know, um, in, in that instance, um, you know, probably nominals are a slightly better bet because at least you're being paid for the higher uh, amount of carry.
0: Interesting. So we're certainly um, um, staying cautious on, on on the tip side. Now, one of the things that's, I guess, an interesting observation over the last few weeks is the fact that uh, Bundt yield, so the 10-year German Bundt yield, has actually gone above the level it was pre-pandemic, which is um, again highly unusual, and possibly, if someone had predicted that that would happen, you know, six months or even twelve months ago, they probably wouldn't believe you. They still think that, you know, there was, um, uh, you know, BUN yields w- would be lower. What's your what's your thought process on that? I I, I know you're you're a little bit more cautious on uh, on on, on i looking at them uh, as a potential short.
1: So I guess the first thing to say is a you know, negative yielding instruments. So, you know, over the long run, you're going to compound a, a loss. So if you compounded your, your 25 basis negative yield for 10 years, you'd be looking at, you know, almost over 2.5% loss on your capital. So it doesn't make a lot of sense when the economy is taking off. And so I think whilst we have very strong support from the ECB, you know, a more normal level for bunds, you know, could be much higher. And if you think about Europe as being geared to the global economic recovery, geared to trade, geared to the pickup in, 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 um, in activity in you know, places like China as well, then it seems to me that you know, bond yields could could move a little bit higher, um, just to price in stronger economic growth. And if you couple that with the fact that um, you know we're getting. Uh, vaccine rollout um, in Europe much more effective than it was, say, two or three months ago when we saw the pickup in terms of treasury yields, then again, you could see this change in sentiment where, you know, suddenly it's paid, you're paid to take more risk um, and actually, you know, bunds look uh, less attractive. And I think certainly if treasury yields would start to rise, the relative attractiveness of bunds versus um, uh, treasuries might also be another um, uh, headwind for yields in in Europe. So I I think in short, with negative yields, you're kind of paid to be a little bit short. Um, You're... You know, with the economic recovery, I think the direction should be for a steeper yield curve in in Europe as well. Um, rates will remain low, even though the ECB seems very committed to uh, to QE. Yeah,
0: well, certainly in Germany, there's there's certainly a lot more concern around the ECB policy than there probably has been for a little while, to be honest. I, th-
1: I think so. I think, you know, as we come out of the, re- you know, as we come out of the sort of recession period and and we're into that strong recovery, then you could see, you know, the uh, the disagreements that have been around monetary policy in Europe sort of start to, to froth up again, I guess. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if inflation really does pick up in the short run, whether you know the more hawkish countries around actually start to be a bit more um, vocal in terms of um, the QE, uh, the, the QE side of things, and you know the Germans have always had that challenge in the constitutional <laughs> courts and things like yeah, that. Exactly. So I think it's definitely yeah. there is definitely that that prospect if. Uh, if the recovery seems to, you know, take off in Europe.
0: Well, I think it's also compounded by the fact that we have the EU recovery fund is finally going to start getting its money and and putting it to work. So uh, so certainly that is, um, you know, something. I I mean, you could even argue that unlike the US to deploy the money very quickly when there was massive deflation and, you know, and, um, and, and, sort of huge drop drops in in economic growth europe by the time they got their act together the recovery had already taken place and you're just adding a little bit more fuel to an already improving economy
1: yeah i mean i i do think that europe is probably a few months or you know quarters behind the us as well right so i mean if you see what's happening in the us and you you use that as a template for what's happening in in europe then you know it could be it could be pretty strong right?
0: Mm, absolutely. Uh, so let's move on to fixed income spread. So this is uh, corporate bonds and emerging market bonds. Um, so the big question for everybody at the moment is how low can it go, right, in terms of spreads? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you can provide some context, certainly on the on the high-yield market first.
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of the high-yield market, um, spreads have contracted a very long way since uh, since last year um, when we saw that sort of degree of st- Distress and worries around uh, default risks. Um, so, in terms of where we've got to now, we're we're below the sort of levels and spreads that we've seen in the last decade, and we're more aligned with the levels that we were seeing, you know, prior to the financial crisis. So, spreads, you know, spreads look very tight, um, and also yields look very low relative to history as well. So, if you're thinking about your compensation in high yield, then obviously, um, you know what the yield compensates you for is the higher levels of default. Um, Now on the default side of things, default rates have come down. I think, you know, last month, um, you know, in the US, we're down to sort of a a 4.9% 12 month trailing um, default rate, but that captures a lot of 2020. And actually, there were only about three defaults when we were averaging more like eight or nine uh, each month, um, you know, prior to that. So default levels have definitely come down as the recoveries come up. Um, So maybe the default risk has started to diminish. Um, but the, in terms of overall yields, those yields don't compensate you for a lot of um, uh, default risk. So I think, you know, in terms of what you're getting from high yield at the moment, I think it's very much more about the yield, the carry. Um, and to a certain extent, given the economic tailwinds, that's, that's pretty positive. But I think in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the absolute levels, things are looking a lot more expensive in a more risky market
0: absolutely. Certainly warrants we have a neutral we have a neutral waiting really to, to click the coupon, but uh, certainly it's very hard to justify being more aggressively positioned given where I think, y- yields are and spreads are.
1: Yeah, and I think the danger the danger is that it, you know, with yields so low, you're getting a lot of refinancing activity out of companies who now can refinance at much lower rates than they have you know for the last ten years, even in the high yield market. Um, and so the life of your bonds, if you like, is, 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 is very much shorter. So they are short-duration assets. Uh, they are being replaced. If something goes wrong, then potentially, you know, companies don't come to the market; they don't refinance, and you have this extension risk in a lot of high yield bonds, which means that actually your bond prices can be much more asymmetric to the downside. So, I think it, you know, in in that environment, you certainly want to be quite uh, picky about what you're uh, what you're selecting in, in the in the high yield space. Um, I think in terms of looking at the sectors that have been most impacted, I think the other thing that's helped in terms of default rates and indeed. You know, um, uh, the pricing has been oil prices. Obviously, we've seen a pretty strong recovery in oil prices, and US high yield um, is, is 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 obviously quite uh, has quite a sector concentration in um, in energy, and when oil prices rise, you know, the default risks diminish quite substantially. And um, those those sort of uh, most expensive those most cheapest se- segments of the market like oil and energy, um, they rally very hard. So I think in terms of you know that other dimension, you know any correction in the oil price could also have a ne- negative knock-on ep- effect on um, on certain segments. Having said that, the default rates in that segment, as you'd expect with higher oil prices, have dropped off as well. So that's another source of you know improvement in terms of what we were seeing last year. I think the other element is with the opening up. The last year, retail was obviously uh, retail and consumer products were hit as well in terms of defaults, and those two sectors of the market have also, um, you know, seen a normalisation in default rates. Um, so I think it's uh, it's 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 been a sort of you know the, the pick up in economic activity has definitely helped. Um, I think you can't underestimate how much fiscal policy has also helped companies to get through um, hard times in terms of liquidity and cash flow. And ultimately, if you've got the cash, you pay your debt first and keep going until um, until uh, you get through the other side and, and, and the business picks up again. So I think that sort of bridging um, intervention has really helped.
0: Absolutely. So let's move on to the emerging markets. Um, where are we finding kind of more cheaper opportunities at the moment?
1: So EM has been absolutely fascinating I think over the last, uh, you know, couple of months. There's been a huge amount of dispersion um in, you know, various countries and it's really come down to sort of a lot of idiosyncratic uh stories rather than necessarily thinking about it as, you know, as as a sort of homogenous set, I would say. Um so I think in terms of the opportunities, you know, there are a lot of situations out there I would say and it's kind of like how do you read the situations I mean, obviously with China, um, you know, we've seen a, a multitude of different things happen in the last, uh, you know, in the last six months, US sanctions on corporate bonds in China. That's been a, a big story. We saw the regulation hit some of the internet tech giants that had a knock on impact on on bond markets. It wasn't, you know, purely an equity story. We obviously had the Huarong story in, in, in the China um, asset management space. Um, So China's been one source, you know, again, down to idiosyncratic stories. Um, LATAM has been a really interesting space in terms of a lot of political risks, I would say. You look at what's happened in Chile around the constitutional change that sort of undermined, um, you know, institutional confidence in, 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 in sustainability. And we've seen... Um, we 've seen chile chile 's credit rating drop. We saw colombia lose uh, an investment grade rating from s and p which came as a little bit of a surprise because tax reforms were d- dropped on the back of you know social protests um, in Peru we have a very closely fought election between two populist candidates one of whom's you know extreme left candidate who looks like he 's going to win the Um, win the presidential race. And then we've also had elections in Mexico as well. So LATAM has been a really fascinating place. India has been a fascinating place as well because um, we obviously had the big spike in terms of uh, COVID and you saw bond spreads, you know, widen out quite aggressively there as well because of fears of sort of higher fiscal deficits and more strain on, on government finances. And so, you know, all of these different stories have been playing out in, you know, across the across the world. And they've really, it really has come down to individual stories and situations.
0: So, Michael, typically, and you and I know this very well from our, from our experiences, is that when treasury bond yields, you know, sell off, i.e. yields go up, you have this correlation trade that... Ultimate filters, particularly for the emerging markets, kind of filters in, and you have spreads that wide suddenly just become wider because they're correlated to a sell-off in treasuries. Did we see any of that, uh, you know, in in the sort of February March period where we saw you no know, significant um, sell-off in in treasuries at that time?
1: Yeah, so certainly EM, you know, sort of underperformed. I think the concerns are that as, as obviously as as yields rise. For those countries who are much more reliant on external funding, who are reliant on um, you know U.S. dollar markets, then suddenly there comes a more, more pressure on their ability to repay debts. And at this point in time, emerging markets are certainly behind, you know, developed markets in terms of rolling out vaccines, um, in terms of, um, I guess, in terms of you know the potential risks that the, 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 they, they see as well. So. Yeah, when we saw that treasury move higher um, certainly the more risky end of the market certainly was much more uh, positively correlated so spreads widened out with with treasuries but typically those sort of um, those sort of moves are quite short-lived and as we see you know treasury volatility calm down then people tend to pick and choose between the countries that they believe have the ability to ride out those uh, periods of higher rates and those countries that are going to be much more susceptible to higher rate environments. So countries like Turkey, for example, historically, very much more sensitive to a rise in uh, U.S. treasury yields because the vast, you know, current account deficit they run on a structural basis and their reliance on external funding, um, you know, to, to, to fund their, their economy, if you like. So those are the sort of markets that, you know, really sort of, Suffered, I guess, much more so than maybe the more robust economies who are, you know, who have much, um, you know, have access to, uh, you know, dollar revenues through exports or have, you know, very s- sustainable balance sheets, um, you know, to ride out periods of higher, uh, higher interest rates.
0: Obviously, one of the big challenges, running a bond fund these days is um, just liquidity just talk us through obviously we had this I would say relatively good performance period during sort of March April time last year there was volatility of course and there was a drawdown but compared to many of your competitors the drawdown was relatively modest can you just talk through the play you know the playbook during that sort of March April period how you managed you know how do you manage liquidity because you know any, some of our clients or, or our client relationship managers know very well that um, uh, you know whenever there's volatility you know the the liquidity just drives up and if you want to sell or buy something it's usually at a big cost um, um, m- maybe take us through that sort of March April period because I, I think it's quite interesting and quite instructive
1: you know, going back to March and April time, I think in terms of liquidity, um, what you typically find is that um, you're very reliant on where the market is willing to sort of price bonds. So it's an OTC market. It's difficult to get the visibility perhaps that you'd get in the equity markets. And so in terms of managing for that liquidity, you have to basically structure your portfolio around, uh, around understanding where the liquidity is going to be in in the market and and um how you can realize cash and how you can manage your risk but maintain liquidity so typically what we have in the portfolios is a degree of bonds that we would hold as sort of liquidity or high liquidity bonds we identify you know names such as sovereign bonds in in emerging markets, which will trade through any kind of market environment. So large issue size, big benchmark names. Typically, you'll find liquidity. You might find volatility, but you'll find liquidity in those bonds. And then that allows you to rotate your portfolio around um, if you're looking to switch your risk, uh, reduce your duration, increase your duration, or to uh, rotate your credit quality, go up or down the credit uh, credit quality spectrum so when we when it comes to sort of managing through those uh, those periods of liquidity it's obviously about having the right portfolio construction it's then also about um you know understanding you know how you can best adjust that portfolio to the current market environment so that's essentially what we, we we aim to do and if i look at the last sort of 18 months we came into 2020 with quite low levels of duration and high levels of high quality assets we then had the ability to rotate out of you know out of those um high quality assets into um into longer duration assets so increase our risk but maintain liquidity because we were looking at you know um, very liquid names that we could easily um, sell if we needed to and then you're looking to sort of layer the portfolio so we adjusted down Uh, the credit quality spectrum, but again, focus on the liquidity of the underlying bonds and the ability to rotate them should we need to um, in in any market condition. So I think it it really is about portfolio construction, understanding the nature of the bonds, understanding which bonds you want to hold for a very long period of time, come what may, and which bonds you can afford to use as adjustment in the the short run.
0: I, I guess anticipating... Um, liquidity issues and looking at your portfolio very carefully and being able to say, right, okay, this is something I want to hold forever and you pretty much don't do very much to it. But then you look at your kind of liquidity um, pools um, because those liquidity pools provide you with the opportunity to switch into higher risk bonds, particularly if spreads are very low uh, or tight, should I say. And that gives you that flexibility to act whenever you have Uh, a difficult period of time so essentially you're acting as liquidity provider in a difficult time rather than someone who's just desperately trying to get out during a difficult time
1: when we're seeing market distress whether that's across the whole market as in you know 2020 or whether that's in times when it's individual kind of distress being able to be a liquidity provider has advantages um, because you know if you're if you've got the liquidity in your in your portfolio, you can rotate it around. Then potentially you can step in and and buy those bonds that everybody else is selling out of desperation. And typically, when you see desperation, that means they're willing people are willing to accept any price. Um, and that means that you're actually getting very well paid, typically for buying bonds at that point in time. So it does seem a bit counterintuitive when when risk is is and uncertainty are high. If you have a high level of conviction and you're looking and you understand the underlying investments um, then understanding when those uh, prices are really in distress and then being able to enter the market by um, by you know providing um, some liquidity um, can actually generate uh, you know good performance
0: so let's talk about obviously you know a a case in point at the moment so uh, we have uh, Horong which is you know, the, one of the largest asset managers or distressed asset managers in China, obviously, um, has has had a bit of an air pocket. Probably the best way to describe it over the course of the last uh, you know few months, and uh, you know, certainly fears around whether the government is going to support this company, given it's uh, an investment grade company, and uh, would uh, you know maybe be a, a kind of if like a some respect a little bit of a trophy asset from a China perspective of how they solve their problems of the past. Do you, do you want to just talk us through um, the, you know, the current situation? How do you deal with that? Um, obviously, uh, and your thoughts about the current situation. I know that um, many uh, investors have been uh, caught up in um, Huarong. Uh, so it'd be quite interesting if you could tell us how you do that and uh, or, or how you think about it.
1: Sure, so I mean, very briefly, for those people who aren't so you know familiar with the uh, situation, I guess Huarong is a large distressed um, asset manager um, in China. There's really four distressed asset managers who essentially provide a service to banks by buying uh, bad assets and then restructuring them to produce a profit for themselves and to recycle its bad assets back into the economy and therefore deal with a lot of the debt issues that are going on in, in China right now. So it's, it's quite a key piece of the infrastructure. Now, what happened in sort of, um, you know, two or three years ago was that the um, the president of the company, the CEO, um, was, found, was found to be sort of um, – I guess, pushing the business in the wrong direction and bolt on acquisitions and using essentially fraud to, um, um, you know, to sort of feather his own pockets. So he got he got actually prosecuted for corruption and bigamy and was actually subsequently uh, executed for those for those crimes. So quite a severe punishment on an individual level level. But what we were seeing in the last two or three years was a degree of restructuring in the Huarong business, so disposing of assets that shouldn't have really been in that business, um, given its sort of strategic importance to the uh, to the Chinese government. What happened in April was that Huarong failed to, um, you know, sign off its accounts with its auditor, and therefore it had to sort of, um, you know, post uh you know a notice to the market saying we've, we haven't been able to sign off the accounts we'll we'll um we'll do this at a later stage and then there was a rumor that essentially Huarong was going to need to do more substantial restructuring and the market didn't really know how to take that now with financial firms in particular access to the market is really critical where you where you borrow from and if you're a short-term borrower then have a it- the confidence of the market is very critical and that headline really sparked a sort of vicious cycle of um, you know bond selling and investor uncertainty and so we saw bonds drop very uh, very rapidly. We still haven't seen a resolution to this you know to this account situation so we really don't know at this point in time how bad the situation might be but you can draw uh, information from previous accounts, you can draw parallels from um, other firms, which, you know, to, to come to some conclusion about what the sort of various scenarios could be around the individual company. So with this sort of, you know, this sort of liquidity uh, air pocket that you mentioned in terms of bond prices, Huarong was essentially shut out of the, the bond market, it couldn't really refinance itself. And what we saw was the government wasn't willing to step in and outright bail out and say, yes, we're going to guarantee the debt. But what it did do is essentially force the Chinese banks to provide that liquidity that the market had been previously providing. So we have seen in some respects the government support that was anticipated. But we still don't know the resolution of this particular problem because obviously what needs to happen is Huarong needs to um, to be a functionable business again and have access to the market in order to sort of you know to to be able to borrow against what is essentially very illiquid assets. So now what the Chinese government really have to, you know, have in terms of a um, a solution is how do we how do we support this company without encouraging the moral hazard of we're gonna bail out every single SOE that's out there, every single government sponsored company. Because you know in China, virtually every every company is a you know is an SOE of some kind. Um, and or historically was. And people lent money with the belief that some government entity would uh, would would support it in the event of this type of distress. So I think that's the moral hazard that they've been trying to break. Simply stepping in and bailing out Huarong, even though it's very systematically important, would perpetuate that that risk. So they've, they're caught between a rock and a hard place, and I think that's the reason why this has been such an elongated, uh, you know, uh, pr- process for Huarong. So, what are the outcomes if they do step in and bail out? I guess. You know They can do that in a number of different ways. But when you're looking at the bond prices, you're trying to assess what's your recovery value, what's the potential outcome, and and then you'd relate it to where the price of the bond is in the market. So when we do that assessment, we reassess the, 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 the potential recovery, the potential outcomes, where might the bond price on the other side of this crisis, and you come to a conclusion about your upside risk and your downside risk. And then you make an assessment of how much volatility you're willing to to to, to, to stomach, and then um, and then whether to sell or to buy. So there's a very structured process we go through. We go through this sort of what are the scenarios? How do we? How does that impact the bond prices? Should I uh, should I um, should I buy or should I sell or should I simply hold? Um, and the other thing we do is typically look about you know reassess the bond. We want to hold. So, in previous crises, you know, if I go back to Russia in two thousand and fifteen, for example, the optimal strategy was actually to reduce your 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 level of investment in terms of um, the actual cash you committed to the market. So, if you bought, you know, two three year bonds with the idea that there was a yield associated with them, then those bonds might drop by, um, you know, nine or ten points. The yield might skyrocket to you know, to double digits. But actually, the recovery on that is only say 10 points. Whereas if you buy a very long duration bond, you're only maybe committing half the capital, but you're going to get a much bigger payoff because when yields compress, it has a much bigger impact in terms of price. So we're always thinking about not only what the outcomes are, but what's the optimal way to play it through duration or through maturity structure.
0: Yeah, I think that's often the case. Whenever there's a crisis, people look at a short dated bond and say, "Oh, this yield looks really high," but the bond is trading at 90 or 95, so the upside is probably only five points or ten points, as you quite rightly point out. But they bought the same security uh, with, say, uh, you know, a 10 year or 30 year outcome. The price might be 70. So, uh, or you know, and if that was to recover, obviously you have a 30 point recovery versus a five point recovery over time
1: and also the level of risk that you're taking you know particularly in those types of situation if you if you've committed 95 cents on the dollar then you stand to lose 95 cents on the dollar Correct. whereas if you're if you're buying something that's only trading at 70 cents on the dollar then obviously you're committing only you know you know 70 cents to the to the final repayment
0: yeah exactly so i think that's a that's a very good strategy for uh for uh, for people to uh, to think about coming up to the sort of final few questions now, uh, Michael. So uh, obviously, there's been a huge amount talked about green bonds, um, sustainability bonds. You know, um, I think it might be quite instructive for people to kind of understand the differences because you know at the moment everyone puts puts them into one big box and um, and uh, doesn't really. You know, think about the differences. So maybe um, we we'd do a little bit of a tutorial here. So, um, what do we mean by green bonds, and what do we mean by sus- sustainability bonds?
1: So, I mean, I, I think we're still in a period of sort of, you know, structuring ESG-friendly um, debt. So they all come in different shapes and sizes, but you know, very broadly speaking the a green bond is a um is essentially a commitment to invest in green projects so a company will then raise finance against those specific um uh, projects if you like now it's where it's interesting because you kind of have to the devil is in the detail in many respects because you know it could be that the company is planning to invest in um you know hydroelectric power plant or uh, or a a solar project, or something that's more, and replace a coal-fired power station for for argument's sake, and you could argue that has a very high impact on on the environment, or it could be as simple as, and I have seen this in certain um, certain issuers, uh, installing smart meters into people's homes, as a as a project. So essentially, you know, uh, helping to the argument is you're helping to reduce the. Um, the carbon footprint by better energy management. So they do, the, you know, the green bond framework, if you like, the idea is essentially, you know, you're raising money to commit to a project. With the sustainability-linked bonds, often there's a corporate target involved. And I think this is where it's kind of interesting, the sustainability versus the green, green bonds, because, you know, for example, a company like NL, you know, uh, where you have, um, you know, high-carbon high, high carbon uh output has committed to reducing its carbon footprint and therefore has a coupon potentially that is linked to a specific environmental target like say a reduction in carbon emissions so i think it's kind of interesting because it links a financial incentive potentially to um to actually achieving those goals and maintaining a a lower cost of finance than um than, than um than otherwise so I think it's kind of interesting because on the one hand you you know the green bonds you're essentially locking in money at a fixed rate whereas you know there's a sort of um you know there's a sort of more forward-looking bias towards those sort of sustainability bonds um so I think it's yeah there's there are nuances there um between you know different ESG uh type of uh what we've seen is a real explosion in terms of the uh, the number of sort of uh, green bonds, sustainable bonds, um, you know, social bonds. They've, there's been a whole range of different, uh, uh, again, okay, models put forward to, to the market. Um, for me, I always think what's really important is to understand how the ESG risks are impacting the credit profile. So for us, it's about us assessing what are the risks associated with ESG to the credit profile. Is this going to be something that is going to threaten the the revenue line? Is this something that's going to be threatening your your cost inflation and therefore reducing your profitability, which also impacts your credit health, or is it simply a, a reputational you know uh, effect, um, which means that. Investors are just not going to invest in your bond, and your investment investor base is, is going to be reduced or 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 minimalised. So we when we think about this, it's not just purely about the it's not just purely about the you know the structure of the bond. It's also about what the commitment of the company is and what the risks associated with the company is and how well you're paid for that risk.
0: So in the case of Enel, um, you mentioned the coupon is linked to certain environmental targets the company sets so just to clarify if the coup uh, if they meet their targets the coupon goes down if they don't meet the targets the coupon goes up
1: no th- to clarify the coupon stays the same right if if they meet their target so they commit to a target and the coupon stays the same and if they don't Hit the- if they don't, then they they face cost inflation essentially through through that. Um, now, in some cases, I would say it's it's rather marginal, 25 right. basis points. Right, it's not right, a huge right. penalty. Right. Um, but if you were to link that across a series of bonds and your whole capital structure, then obviously, you know, it could become a more material cost. And investors like that kind of structure because it clearly links environmental targets with uh with financial cost
0: yeah no it's uh, I can certainly see how that may be very beneficial uh for investors and certainly investor pressure to ensure that there's um a, a clear financial incentive for the company to uh to uh, to to reach their targets
1: i think it also helps those companies that obviously are in sectors which are yeah um gonna be penalized for the nature of their business, so you know a good example of this is say j b s which is a beef um producer in 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 the u s and brazil uh they they issued a sustainability uh bond recently, and obviously investors who are looking at methane methane output and carbon output and everything else they may simply exclude it from the perspective that you know it's too high leveler of a you know output and structure their portfolios around the idea that i'm simply going to exclude to reduce my carbon footprint but actually that's a business that's still going to be around right um you know maybe you know beef production you know reduces and we're all eating less beef so that does create a threat to their, their their top line if you like but ultimately, it's a business that's probably likely to be there. So having a company that is more responsible and reducing its emissions and looking for ways to do that is, um, you know, is, is, is quite positive and it attracts those investors who do have uh, you know, ESG targets and do want to integrate um, some kind of uh, ESG framework within, uh, within their investments and attracts those back into sectors that may, may well otherwise be uh, penalised.
0: I guess with JBS, uh, they could have done with a cybersecurity <laughs> policy as well. Um, to sort of pay out a whole lot of bitcoin to uh, to um, to uh, I guess cyber terrorists. Um, I think that um, that is actually very very interesting way. I'm sure um, our analysis and the industry's analysis will continue to develop uh, along those ESG and sustainability um, lines. Rather than purely um, on, on green itself, which I think is quite frankly a little bit more murky uh, in terms of it. Um, it, um, you know, it helps develop a particular project, but actually you're helping the company across its whole business as a result uh, of that um, of that green bond. They could still be a very very dirty company, but they had one project that uh, that is uh, has a slightly lower financing cost, um, and uh, you know it, it doesn't really hit them uh in the uh in the purse uh so uh, michael uh, kind of coming to the end of our time uh so um thank you very much for uh for going through that um uh kind of very detailed analysis of um how um you're managing a crisis how you manage rates inflation what the views are and obviously green and sustainability so uh Thank you very much uh, again, and uh, no doubt we'll have you again on the podcast relatively swiftly.
1: Thanks for having me, Moses. As always, it's been a real pleasure.
0: Thanks. Uh, So that wraps us up uh, for today. Uh, Thank you very much uh, for listening in, and we will talk to you again very soon.